Today I am joined by my co-host and publisher of the Infinite Worlds magazine, Winston Ward. This is our first podcast. I figured I'd give a rough roadmap as to the terrain, or shall we say alien terrain, that we're going to explore. And if you're here, you either are a listener to my podcast, or you follow me on Instagram, or you follow Infinite Worlds magazine on Instagram. If you don't follow them, then I recommend that you pause this and you follow Infinite Worlds ASAP. Because when I saw what Winston was doing with Infinite Worlds, I was immediately blown away. His curating of the art from vintage golden era sci-fi book covers was just so cool and so compelling and so inspiring that that I, I reached out to him. I followed him and then I reached out to him and I just said, dude, I'm a sci-fi fanatic and we need to start a podcast and lo and behold here we are so as far as the crux of this podcast after all that back and forth we decided that we are going to focus on of course all things sci-fi but not just sci-fi i think it really boiled down to the fact that we both love like very cool cultish sci-fi which makes the subject of today's podcast somewhat of an aberration. We decided, first and foremost, let's just get the elephant out of the room and talk about Star Wars. We both grew up loving Star Wars. I, for one, watch every single thing that has ever been put out under the franchise. And yet, Winston and myself agree that there is nothing that is ever broken our hearts more. But still, there have been bright spots, and hopefully Rise of Skywalker is going to be one of them. Um, I, don't, I don't think I'll ever give up the nostalgia and the, uh, the way I felt about it, and so I'm always, you know, at least curious. But as far as sci-fi and what we really love, I think Star Wars is at the complete other end of the spectrum. It's become, and it probably always was, real family fare. And uh, as far as my love of sci-fi... I mean, I could point to a few like real cult-type movies the, that that I just love, which are Ex Machina, Moon, 2001. I mean, there are so many, Solaris, so many that are just more adult fare and that really deal with heavy issues. Also, I come from a love of uh, the magazine Heavy Metal, which is so similar to what Winston's been doing with Infinite Worlds magazine. Anyhow, who likes listening to podcast intros? Buckle up and enjoy. So what did you think about it? Uh, I've still got one episode left. I'm all but finished with it. And so far, you know, it definitely, because I was listening to uh, Dead Zone at the same time, I could definitely feel how it sort of seemed like Stephen King was rehashing some old ideas uh a little bit um so i got a little bit of that vibe from it but overall it was pretty good or it has been pretty good so far um james franco did not i didn't make the connection that's so dope that you were able to oh totally things at the same time totally random too absolutely random like i use a app called libby and it lets you check out audiobooks from your local library you just sign in with your library card 
Uh, so, you know, you just, wow. Yeah. And that's, I mean, I, I'm a frugal type guy when I can be, you know what I mean? So I'm like, Oh yeah. Free library, oh, yeah, audio, audio, audio books. What's up? Dude, audio books are so expensive too, man. Oh, oh totally. Oh. And I, I did, um, audible for a while too. And audible's cool because it gives you a, a free credit every month. So you can download and own any audiobook they carry or whatever but it's like but, but how does that how does it work because i get a free credit every month but i know they're charging me somewhere right well, yeah you get the um you do have to pay like for the audible service or whatever which is like 18, oh. 18 or 16 or something dollars a month so it's basically so you're like for an audiobook every um, month. Yeah, exactly exactly yeah. they're not <laughs> dumb they're yes. not giving anything away for free yeah uh, and then but then it gives you like discounts on other uh, audiobooks, like you get them cheaper than you would elsewhere or whatever. Oh, right? yeah. And they have a really big library of audiobooks, which is nice. Like you could literally get anything you feel like. And it's really cool because you can look through like the really obscure stuff and find stuff for pretty cheap. And yeah. I, and that was pretty cool. That's actually how I listened to X minus one, which mm-hmm. I don't know if you've ever checked that out, but that was like a NBC radio show broadcast, uh, like radio plays from the 50, the 40s and 50s. Uh, and that was that was pretty interesting. Like it, they did like classic sci-fi writers short stories, but turned into like radio plays. Oh, that's so cool, man! I have to check that out. I'm gonna look for that. No, I just got back into like audiobooks. Like I would I would listen to audiobooks whenever I would jump on the road, and uh, but that was it only for like road trips. But sure. now I'm I'm really kind of digging it. I think podcasts have gotten me more into audiobooks and so i've been listening to a lot of audiobooks right now i'm listening to ted chiang's um exhalation he wrote uh, the the short story on which arrival was based sure and so it's all sci-fi and i'm blown away by how heady his sci-fi is it's really really um it's really intensely like hard, uh, kind of almost philosophical and hard cerebral sci-fi. I've never encountered anything mm-hmm. like his short stories before. Have you read any of his? I haven't actually. I know, I know the name. I'm familiar with the name, but uh, like when it comes to modern sci-fi, I am, I'm behind. You know what I mean? Like there's a lot. Like I, I, I never know which modern authors to read because I'm kind of still caught up reading all these authors from like the 20th century. So uh, that's uh, rad, though. That's rad, and that's what I love about the the Infinite World magazine. Why don't you know what? Let's go ahead and kind of introduce ourselves. I am uh, I'm Nick Gullo, and I am a just fanatic for sci-fi. I have been since I was a little kid. I um I first started. I think my first introduction to sci-fi was as a little kid going into the the library when I was like in third grade and finding my second grade finding my first book on my own like being let loose and it was a sci-fi book and uh i've told you before it was almost like just taking lsd because (laughs) just reading the pages and seeing the images and the sounds and the it was like vr for the brain and i've never gotten over that and i've never gotten over sci-fi and from there it was twilight zone to a wrinkle in time and i did and i'm finally to dune and dune for me is the just the pentultimate sci-fi series i've read every single book not only by franker but by his kid and i've loved all of them but uh but when i first saw infinite world magazine 
and on Instagram, and I saw the uh, the old retro like sci- pulpy kind of sci-fi uh, art that were on those covers. It just took me back to being a kid. And what's crazy is how many people I've sent the Instagram account to, and they they've loved it and followed it and said the exact same thing. It reminds them of being a kid. And uh, man, so I definitely, and that's how I ended up contacting you. I was just like, dude, this is so inspiring. Like what you're doing. And I, uh, I really man. just wanted to to talk with you and find out what in the world was your inspiration for starting the magazine. Okay, well, so, uh, cool introduction. Thanks for that. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm Winston. I'm the founder of Infinite World Science Fiction Magazine. Uh, I am also, uh, you know, purebred sci-fi nerd all the way from uh, a childhood, reading all the alien books and all the alien comic books growing up uh watching robocop and terminator and alien and uh 2001 a space odyssey and star wars and all of it you know and um i just it just kind of stayed as a fascination in my life for the longest time just kind of in the background just when i would write i'm a writer uh and when i'd write i tend to gravitate towards writing science fiction you know and um I just couldn't get over the covers of these old sci-fi magazines, and it just kind of blew my mind that there was, you know, like a lesser appreciation for this kind of art, for this aesthetic, for this feel of sci-fi from the 20th century. You know, this – I guess it's retro. You look at it and you call it retro now, but it's just like that time frame, you know, and it stretches for 50 years from like the 40s all the way to the turn of the century, Uh, and I just – I loved it so much, and it did. Like you said, like – you mentioned like how it seemed like uh, an almost uh, drug trip type of experience. When you look at this stuff, your mind just kind of opens up that way. And I still feel that way. I've always felt that way, that same way. And I still do even as an adult. And I realized, man, that's, this is, I I've got to capitalize on this passion or at very least share the passion, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, and I started, uh, I started the, um, Instagram account and it blew up. Everybody was so about the aesthetic and the the feel of it and the look. And I just have been pressing the magazine forward ever since then. Two issues now. Uh, second issue just now arrived, and um, it's really cool that other people have reached out and uh, you know sympathetic minds and like minds. And I just it's it's really exciting for me, you know. And I'm just a I don't even call myself an expert. I don't even think of myself as an expert. I'm just an enthusiast. Yeah, I'm just enthusiastic about this kind of stuff, about like the cooler elements of sci-fi. Yeah, I just I just like sharing that, you know. No, it's great. It's great. It's uh, it reminds me I'm a surfer. I'm a lifelong surfer. And there's this saying that it's like, dude, the best surfer in the water is the one who's having the most fun. (laughs) And I love like subcultures. I love subcultures. Because it just they're always comprised of people who are so just stoked on this particular thing that they just want to share it. And that's kind of what makes us a tribe. I mean, because basically what you've done is you've created this umbrella of people who are like minded, who just want to are so excited about sci fi and especially this retro aesthetic of sci fi that they just want to share it. And that's ultimately what's that's what's so cool about it, man. I love it. Awesome. Well, I'm glad to hear that, you know, and uh, 
I just want to keep that up. You know, I just want to keep uh, bringing people into the conversation, you know, uh, learning things myself about it. That's my fa- my favorite thing is to learn things. So, you know, when I talk to new people, uh, read new articles, uh, have conversations with you, um, to have conversations with my followers on Instagram or Twitter, it, you know, I learn. So it's very enriching for me. Uh, so I, you know, in a way I'm being kind of selfish doing this <laughs> because <laughs> like, uh, it, you know, it, I get a lot from it myself personally, you know, it helps me grow a lot, like, especially, you know, mentally. Oh yeah, for sure. And, and you know what it is, it's, it's, I don't know if I would call it selfish. It's like you said, it's like we were saying, it's just, you're so excited and it's so cool to find people that share this, that that's how, that's how comic book conventions started. That's how mm-hmm. like role-playing game conventions started. It's like, this is so fun. This is so cool to be able to share this. You know, I, I grew up playing Dungeons and Dragons and there, the idea that just more than like me and my six friends played it, you know, right. we knew what they did, but we didn't have any conventions or any, or the internet or any way to be able sure. to share that with people. I mean, that would be so cool. That's uh, that would have been so cool then. And it is so cool now. That's what I love about it. Nick, I think it would be uh, useful to our listeners to give them some reference about like when we grew up and our ages and everything. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm 36. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was born in 1983 and I turned 18 in 2001. So, uh, yeah. So for me, my perspective is developing right alongside the Internet. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, turning an adult, turning into an adult right at the dawning of a new millennium. Yeah. So I have this very strange, you know, you know, I'm not alone. There's a lot of people my age, obviously, but it's a, it seems like a unique perspective on these kinds of things. You're just a little bit older than me. Yeah. It's, yeah. I mean, I, I grew, I turned 18 uh, in 1987. And so, yeah, so I was, but even, you know, it's crazy though. I I think about this all, I'm a writer also, and I write sci-fi and my, um, the, I'm just finished three books in a series of novellas, uh, a book called a series called arc zero. And it was very, very inspired by these old pulpy. I used to go to bookstores all the time and I would collect these old books and I would look at the art and I would always be like, why can I not, I find this art, this pulpy art on this sci-fi on these sci-fi novels. And then I would get into reading them and I just could not get past the, the bad writing. And so <laughs> my motivation was, I love like minimalist writing and Raymond Carver and just very, just like to the punch. I actually like kind of noir, like Raymond Chandler type writing. Oh man, um, big fan. Right. And it's like, why can't you just be minimal and just put, but that takes restraint. It's almost like minimalism takes more technique than just spitting shit on the page. You know, writing is rewriting. But anyways, I, so I kind of grew up going to bookstores and seeing this kind of art. And like I said, very influenced by Dune, But, you know, when I came up, I I would say, again, I started reading and this was way before my time. Like I said, this is something that I was thinking I'm going on a tangent here. But I what's great about science fiction is that you can read great science fiction from 1930 or 1940 or 1950 that was written well before your time 
by the time you read it, people are dead. Like I read sure. George Orwell's 1984, you know, it was, what was it <laughs> in 48 and I read it in 84 and it was by far the most influential book I've ever written and read in my life. And I didn't know anything about George Orwell. It was already, you know, 40 years in the past that this thing was published and, uh, and it completely changed my life. Um, so I, you know, it's, it's, there's this weird thing about writing and about science fiction where it just will, it lasts for almost ever. It great science fiction just ages so well. What but I think is, uh, what's that? I said, what I think is that, um, the best science fiction writers introduce ideas into the cultural subconscious that just remain forever. And, you know, often it's easy to trace that idea back to a sci-fi story. And I right? think 1984, uh, is a really great example of that or um, uh, brave new world mm. uh, Ald- Aldous Huxley more or less ki- or kind of a similar idea. Yeah. Uh, and uh, once you know of that story, you know, like it becomes part of how we as a people think. And it's, uh, it's crazy how it just permeate. I, I had told you this story earlier that as far as China, the government goes, they were wondering why, they were lacking so much innovation. And so they had all these, they had people who had technical ability as far as math and science, but there was no creativity within science. And they finally got together with some, some heads of Google and they were talking and quizzing scientists. And it came out that, you know why you're lacking all this is because you have no rich history of science fiction. And China, the Chinese government was like, well, then we need to start nurturing science fiction and we need to start allowing this discourse of free thought. And now we're in the middle of, you know, this almost renaissance or this golden age of Chinese um, sci-fi with what was it? Three. We, we talked about this also. Three body problem. There's a modern author I have read. So, yeah, I love that trilogy. That was right. Is definitely that so good. Yeah, it was overwhelmingly good. I was very impressed. <laughs> kind of a slow burn, but really... it definitely it takes it. You have to. I mean, it's three very long books. But when you finally get to the end, it really does like. <laughs> It it's pays crazy, off. Huh? It pays off. It pays off so hard to me, at least. I mean, it, it couldn't no, be a grander scale. Yeah. Is what I have to say about that. Yeah. Uh, Very cool. Very cool. So anyways, that's kind of a little bit about ourselves. Um, oh, yeah. So uh, so why don't we get to the elephant in the room? Oh, there's yeah. An elephant, there's an elephant in the room. And I think uh, it's probably apt time because we've got another uh, installment of this series. So why don't we just talk star Wars? Yeah. Uh, For, for me, star Wars, I I saw star Wars in the theater. I was a little, little kid. I had no idea what was happening. You would have been about eight or nine or so when star Wars came out. man, eight years old. I remember standing in line and, uh, with my little brother, he was like five and my uncle was like, come on, we're going to go. And he was kind of a hippie. And uh, we're going to go see this movie. And I had no idea what we were going to see. I just know there was a line around the block to go see the movie. And then it just opened. And um, we went in and, dude, I, again, another LSD fucking acid trip. In the middle of that movie, when he pulled out the, when Obi-Wan pulled out that lightsaber, and he was like, Dude, and he started talking about the force. I think my brain melted. I, I almost. I am like, so jealous of that experience. Like, 
to be able to see that of all movies to be able to see that movie at that like developmental age is just no wonder you're such a uh, sci-fi fan man well yeah (laughs) that that too yeah Uh, but yeah the way i think the reason that nick referred to um Star Wars is the elephant in the room, even though, uh, you know, clearly we both have a lot of love for Star Wars is uh, what it's become, you know, like the way it's developed from this just massive, almost cultish success to just the behemoth of entertainment, the entertainment industry, you know, like just the um, profit machine that it's turned into and uh, like having to somebody who saw it, my experience with it is not quite the same. I watched all those kids or those movies on VHS growing up in the late eighties and early nineties, like went through at least three copies of each of those movies. Um, Just watch it as often as I could, of course. Uh, And then episode one Phantom Menace came out when I was 16 years old and I was a, a bona fide nerd at this point. You know, I had an episode one hat leading up to the <laughs> leading up to the debut because I was so like amped up on it. And like almost everyone else in the world, I felt enormously betrayed. Oh my gosh! By the the prequels, and I I mean, I know it's a pretty easy attitude to take, like. Oh, the prequels were such a disappointment. You know, that's like no unique perspective to have that feeling or whatever, but it's the truth, you know. At 16, I just left going, that was not. That that ain't it, chief. And um, it was so disappointing. I was <laughs> I snuck into the movie premiere, one of the movie premieres in Westwood in Hollywood. And uh, I remember, like, at first, I was like, this is so cool. And then halfway through, I just started looking around at the audience, and everybody was just kind of in shock. And it was like, is this really that bad? And then by the end of it, you were just like, that can't be. And then each one, each of the prequels got – he tried to get a little darker, but the acting and the writing got progressively worse and dumber in the midichlorians, I mean, I've—I don't think I've ever, in my life, been betrayed by anything that I've loved so much as fucking Star as those first prequels. I couldn't even believe it. And, and you know what, though, in all fairness, even for me, Return of the Jedi, while there were great parts, the whole Ewoks thing I, that I checked out on that, I was and, like, this and, you sucks. Know, even as a kid, even as a ten-year-old, I could clearly see that Jedi was the worst of the original trilogy you know and it's easy to see why it's this they've just rehashed the plot of a new hope and uh and then they just make it sillier and but even still it still had at least the feel of the original star wars you know it still felt the same even there were segments of it outside of the ewoks that were in the job of the hut thing got so stupid especially when he went back and added that and oh my gosh bad but yeah you could tell that it was like wow this thing's kind of falling up the wheels are falling off on this and then later in life this was you know only half a decade ago uh this whole new thing happened when disney bought the rights and now we've got the new star wars movies and i will be the first to admit that i loved the forced awakens mm. uh, uh at, at very least i Loved it while sitting in a chair in the movie theater. 
even though I was so afraid of what I was going to watch because of you know the shock of watching the prequels. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, oh, it was it was there was infinitely better. It, it was then. much, and but even still, even still, it was Jedi all over again. I mean, they're yeah. just blowing up another Death Star again. No, I, I didn't like it. I I was so disappointed with the unoriginality of it that I was just like, oh my gosh, this. And the, the further they go with it, and the more movies they make, and the more TV shows they make, it just starts to feel more and more like a cash grab. And, uh, you know, I'm no fool. Obviously, these movies were made to make money. You know, I'm yeah, not. Yeah, and, and they bought not, Disney bought it for four, five billion, whatever they bought it for. They're in it to make money. This is absolutely a charitable. You know. <laughs> yeah, they're not. Still, they're, they're not in still. it just to inspire our imaginations. You know, and I don't know. George Lucas never was. You know, he's a movie maker. He's trying to make a uh, fortune making movies. I I get it. You know, but. You know, there was there was a really interesting uh, thing. I don't know if you saw it on Netflix, but there was a series that went into um, different toy franchises. They went through He-Man. They went through I don't remember the name of it, but you can I, haven't, find it. I haven't watched it, but the the toys that made us or yeah, like that. exactly. Yeah. And so there was one on Star Wars, and it was uh, it was great. And it they talked about how um, for for George Lucas. He re the rights lapsed with Kenner, I think it was. And so once the rights lapsed, like they had to do X, Y, and Z within this time frame, and they didn't do it. And they lost the freaking uh the toy franchise. And the oh, minute boy. that happened, George Lucas jumped on it and went and redid the that's when he released did the prequels. Because he realized he could renegotiate, like the original contract for the toys was not good for him. And so he renegotiated it in such a way that it was almost like the other way where the toy company couldn't make money. And that's when he decided to do the prequels because it's like, wow, now I can actually make some real money. So it's kind of, I, you know, you hate to be so, so callous about it, but it, that's the reality is he put out those prequels because he reacquired those toy rights. Well, um, I think it's important when we talk about Star Wars which, uh, you know, I don't want to just hate on it. I, it's important <laughs> to know that I have a very much a love, even still, I have a love hate relationship with the star Wars movies. And I, I haven't seen the newest one and I haven't seen the uh, Mandalorian yet, but I'm not disinterested. I'll, I'll watch them if I get a chance. Dude, and, I've Winston, I've seen every single star Wars movie in the theater and I'll even, I've gone just like being like gritting my teeth, but I will not miss a star wars movie in the theater i've seen every single one well i'm just so gun shy now and <laughs> i know we do it um and i don't think i don't really foresee it suddenly becoming a a brilliant franchise again you know <laughs> the, the way it was it, but it's possible you never know but <laughs> since we're talking about it no hold I, on hold on i'm going to tell you one thing I'm okay. going to interject this right now. Okay, go ahead, go ahead. I am such a Star Wars fanatic that after I watched The Last Jedi, which might be worse than the prequels, it's so effing bad. But there were scenes in it that were so good. I went home and I spent an entire week and I took the movie and I threw it into Final Cut Pro and I recut the whole movie. And I cut out an hour of oh boy. it. And it's I... so 
badass nail. I call it the Dark Jedi cut, and I'll have to throw it on Dropbox, Dropbox for you to to watch. It's please so do that. Absolutely, please do that. Yeah, it's so cool, man. It's so cool. I cut out all the porgs, that whole side adventure with Boyega and the uh, the I, casino I, or whatever. Makes going sense. On. I don't understand what they were doing. It doesn't uh, make any sense. Why would you make a three-hour movie when an hour and a half of it is complete throwaway? Um, well, I'm really glad you did that, and I really would love to see that. I know that there exists the Phantom Cut of the prequels, which yeah. somehow is supposed to cut I've out the it. nonsense. Of the, I haven't seen it, but I know it's out there somewhere. Yeah, and it's, again, fans just being like, come on, man. There's something great here. You just – it's for some reason, something about Star Wars, I think it's so – enticing for um for the directors and creators and studio heads whoever's making these decisions to just say all right here's the cool parts let's throw in a bunch of dumb shit so you know well they lean heavily on nostalgia i think you know and most of the really good stuff that you see in the new star wars movies is nostalgic in some way off, like they went so far as to re, you know, to bring the same old characters back, which, you know, who's going to complain about having Han Solo in the movie? But, uh, you know, that was some of the best parts of those movies was having Han Solo in them. Yeah. And I, I don't take away from the new cast. I think the new cast is good. I, I, I actually really like the new cast. I think they're really good. But, um, you know, they they weren't the imagination stirring moments of the movie, at least not for somebody of my age. Yeah, you but know, why in Last Jedi? Why the dumb jokes? Uh, it uh, doesn't make it. That's just bad writing. It's like that's <laughs> not funny. It's not funny, and you're breaking tone. And when you have, like, when you had the the scenes like where Obi Wan in 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 Episode Four, when when he's explaining to Luke about the Force and all that shit, he's doing it with like a reverent, like very serious tone. And that con- is conveyed to the viewer where it's like, this is something serious. Whereas then when you have Luke trying to teach, um, what's her name? The force, it's all jokes. Oh, we're just going to make jokes. We're going to make jokes. We're going to break tone. And it's like, dude, what's wrong with you? Mm. You know, that's not how it was treated in the original. Well, I think we should talk about Star Wars history a little bit because um, I think one of the reasons that Star Wars was so successful in the first place is because Star Wars builds off of a lot of references and a lot of uh, pre-existing nostalgia. Like when he – George Lucas had the idea for it, for this movie, he was actually originally planning on making a Flash Gordon movie. Mm-hmm. That was his plan wow. was to was to make a but he wasn't he wasn't able to get the license for it, uh, wow. and and so it, being unable to do that, he decided to make his own space opera with you know different characters but still a lot of the same uh, uh, prototypical characters. Yeah, and he probably had been listening to like the old radio shows, like the sure, old flashboard yep. with the cliffhangers and the. Yeah, that's cool. Um, And even other elements from the Star Wars movies were lifted from other sources, too. And I want I want to, again, emphasize something else here. I don't think it's necessarily wrong for uh, creatives to lift elements from previously existing material. 
Yeah, what's, or, that, what's that saying? Great artists uh, uh, borrow, or, or good artists borrow, great artists steal, right? Or something and, like that. And, no. and there's there's a kernel of truth in that too. You know, I know that yeah. that that's a little bit of like a glib saying or whatever, but I think there is an element of truth in that. And what Star Wars did was it took all of these elements from different things and it put it together into this this project of such monumental mass appeal. Uh, you know, it was like the Frankenstein's monster of movies in a lot of, lot of ways. Um, Vader's costume was borrowed from a, um, a movie called the fighting devil dogs. Um, wow. The structure of, uh, a new hope was based on a movie by Akira Kurosawa. Uh, and you and I have talked about how star Wars has, uh, in the Jedi, uh, glean a lot of the culture and everything from the samurai. Yes. You and, know, funny, funny story, man. I'm going to interrupt you real quick. I was just, sure. I just got back from Ecuador. I was in Ecuador for, for two weeks and I was with a, a friend of mine who's a UFC fighter. He's one of the top fighters in the world. And he was telling me, he's like, nah, we were talking about star Wars and he's like, I've never seen it. I don't want to watch that shit. This and this. I'm like, dude, cause he's got a big samurai tattoo. I'm like, mm-hmm. dude, Look at Darth Vader's freaking mask. Look at the stormtroopers' masks. Those are samurai. And he just silent. And he's like, bro, I gotta watch those now. He goes, you're right. The lightsabers, the freaking cost. I'm like, dude, it's a samurai movie in space. So and it, you're right. Well, I mean, it, I, he doesn't even. Uh, uh, George Lucas himself has kind of admitted to borrowing these elements. He doesn't really shy away from hiding this stuff. You know, he he he. To his credit, he's willing to admit that he borrowed a lot. You oh, know what yeah. I mean? And a lot. Uh, Frank Herbert, at one point, uh, the Dune writer, uh, nearly sued him because he thought that some of his elements stole from Dune. Although maybe that's a bit of a stretch. Well, dude, how about the spice mines that uh, represent that he well, references? That's freaking straight out of Dune. Absolutely. The and desert I, world of Tatooine. That's Arrakis. Yeah, I mean, you're not wrong to notice these things. There's water farming. That's what they're moisture farming. That's what yeah. Luke does. And and of course, you know, Dune having been such a literary hit at uh, just a decade or so before Star Wars was made, you you got to admit it's not like a completely false accusation or anything. No, and, and dude, you know what else? I don't know if you've found this in your research, but there were, you know, he was so inspired by old like dog fighting movies like world war ii dog fighting movies with the planes that there were there are shot for shot comparisons of how he's he took this shot from a movie like especially the trench warfare where they were atta- there was a movie a world war ii movie where they were attacking a dam and he took shot for shot for shot and said we're just going to rebuild this movie we're going to b- rebuild it in space and he did it it's well, very Tarantino thing to do. Pulp Fiction, same thing. That's what Tarantino does. Uses scenes from different movies, puts them together in his own movie, and it's amazing. Great artist steal, you know? Yeah, yeah. And even does even design elements, like specific design elements from Star Wars are thought to be lifted from other places. A really good example is Chewbacca. The look of Chewbacca is and I don't want to use the word stolen because I don't want to uh, get no, uh, yeah, busted for libel or slander. <laughs> yeah, or uh, but if you look at the cover of Analog Magazine, 
from July of 1975. Uh-huh. You'll see a picture of Chewbacca. Only it's not Chewbacca because that magazine came out two years before Star Wars: A New Hope did. Yeah. He the the cover Wookie is not actually a Wookie. He's a character from a uh, story by George R. R. Martin, believe it or not, who uh, the <laughs> Song yeah. of Fire Ice Rider had a short no- novelette or novella in that issue, and the characters from it look exactly like Wookies. The character's even carrying a bowcaster. No uh, way. Wait, hey, just look it up. Uh, oh, no, I don't. It. Okay, here's the deal. When we post this podcast, you need to put a bunch of slides on the uh, on the, the Instagram post so we can all look at it. I so can do can that. that. I that's can definitely awesome. Do that. I had no uh, idea. That's and dope. it's not that's not the that's not even the only I mean, there's lots of these uh, examples uh, and Ralph McQuarrie who's uh, generally responsible for uh, – he's considered to be responsible for the look of Star Wars. He's the main production designer. Um, I, I can show you side-by-side sketches from John Schoenherr, the the cover artist from that ip- uh, issue of Analog I was describing, and Ralph McQuarrie's concept art from a year later, and they're shockingly identical. Like he – McQuarrie obviously took those drawings and copied them. And, um, that's like, crazy. Wow. And I, I love Ralph McQuarrie. Don't get, yeah. I, I think he's a brilliant artist and he is. And I'm sure the studio executives, because actually from what I understand, Chewie was supposed to look different. I think he was supposed to be like reptilian or something initially. Uh, if, uh, although I don't swear by that. Uh, but the studio executives wanted a different look, and almost certainly mm. one of the, one of those executives brought him that issue of Analog and was like, "No, like this." <laughs> and, and they're like, "Okay, <laughs> yeah." And he, you know, when you're just a uh, production designer and the the studio exec tells you what to do, you're gonna do it, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, oh man, that is so crazy to think about that. It would have been so cool to. Uh, to go back, one of the one of the best videos I've seen on Star Wars was actually about in post production after they had shot everything, how the movie was not working, and George Lucas's wife at the time was a really really good film editor, and she's like, all right, let me take a crack at this, and one of the small things that she added was at the end of A New Hope, there is the scene where the Death Star is aligning to destroy the planet. And so before that, that was never in there. They, that was not in the script. They didn't shoot it. And she's like, listen, they're coming. The rebels are coming to destroy the death star. There are, you know, the hundred thousand, 50,000, 10,000, whatever it is, people that live on the death star, they're just going to just kill all these people. There needs to be, there needs to be bigger stakes and we need a ticking time bomb. So she's like, why don't we have it? So the the death star is going to destroy this planet of innocent millions of innocent people and give it a ticking time bomb. And they said the movie all of a sudden just worked. But it wasn't in there before. They didn't even real. It was only her. She was the one who cracked it. Well, uh, good for her because that <laughs> that right? definitely ratchets up the uh, the tension in that movie a yeah. great deal. Which they they use that trick again and <laughs> again and again, and they 
Thanks to her. A little originality after that, right? Hey, we need a new thing we're going to do. Yeah. Well, you know what? You know, you know what, though? They didn't do it in uh, that. I remember that as I'm thinking about it in Empire Strikes Back and Empire Strikes Back was so original and is definitely my favorite Star Wars movie. Well, if if the Empire Strikes Back isn't your favorite Star Wars movie, then you should watch it again. Because you're wrong. Oh, so good. <laughs> I mean, because it's the best Star Wars movie. Obviously, all of this stuff is subjective, and uh, my opinion isn't more valuable than yours or anyone else's. But come on, I come know. on. <laughs> it's head, it's heads and shoulders above all the other Star Wars movies, and I think that's. I mean, except for the first one, and the first one has originality on its side. Yeah, but yeah. but but it is. Lesser than in every other category. <laughs> yeah, I mean, as far as watchability um, on the Star Wars movies goes, I, I would have to say, believe it or not, man, I think my favorite Star Wars movie is the one that I could watch again and again and again is Rogue One. Rogue One is was just came out of left field. I had no expectations, and I just loved that. I still love. I've probably seen I've that only movie four times. Seen that one times. once or once or maybe twice. I think twice actually, and I like it a lot. It's definitely different because it has an entirely unique cast, which is right? very fun, which is really cool. Like uh, a cast unique only to that movie, and um, that's something that that universe definitely should explore more. Uh, really, just let the events of the other movies just be events that took place in this universe, and yeah. Just have new i mean we all know the rules of this universe there's the force there's good and bad uh people fight with lightsabers there are bounty hunters etc etc we all get it create whole new storylines that's what i think people are ready for and i think that's why like you responded to that movie because it wasn't trying to like ride on coattails as much as some of the other no uh, yeah projects it wasn't, and, and, and I loved how it it wrapped right into Star Wars. It's I love how they just they just pick, but you got to be. I think it was they brought in the movie again was not working. They knew it wasn't working, and so they brought in Tony Gilroy, who wrote Michael Clayton and Devil's Advocate. He's one of the greatest Hollywood writers, directors that there is, and he does not. He's not a Star Wars fan. He doesn't like Star Wars. And he, so he was able to come in with a very objective eye and say, this is what it needs. If this movie is going to work, this is what it needs. And there were numerous uh, rewrites and reshoots on that movie. And, uh, and thank goodness he figured it out and was able to come in with a really dark tone. And uh, yeah, it was great. I loved how everyone died. I just <laughs> everyone. I'm going to give it away. Everyone dies. Yeah, spoiler alert from it. that movie from five years ago. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, that that was... They're not going to leave room for a sequel to that movie. I mean, I guess the sequel, I mean, yeah. they, it led into another movie. And I, it I led right into New Hope, you know. But uh, that was a that's a pretty unique experiment for a movie. Hopefully they have more of that on their mind as they continue to make movies. This, I looked recently at a Star Wars film calendar projection of all the movies they're planning to make. And there's a lot of untitled projects out there. So who knows? Well, I think I think after the after the bomb that was uh, Solo, and I enjoyed Solo. I thought it was okay. I was like, yeah, it was good. It was better than the prequels. It was better than Last Jedi. I I, I enjoyed it. I didn't think it was. I thought it was good. I didn't think it was the greatest movie, but I was like, that's passable. I, 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 I but it didn't do that well. I think it didn't do that well because people were so bummed about Last Jedi. 
Um, that's my feeling, but you know, who knows? Also, I guess we'll have to wait and see for the rise of Skywalker, you know, and see if if people still have that ha- that you know bad taste in their mouth. Well, we say all of these things, and we uh, criticize uh, these movies this way, but they are still so phenomenally successful. Uh, oh, yeah. it, and you know, Disney knows what they're doing and producing, but it seems to me what Disney wants to do is just shoot for mainstream success. And yeah. of course they're, you know, they're a huge movie studio and that's what they're going to do. And I've got, you know, I do your thing, Disney. I, the most of the stuff you produce is pretty good and I won't take that away from you guys. But what infinite worlds is about, I think is discovering and appreciating all of the other things that the mainstream hits are based on, you know? And, uh, when I look at star Wars, I see a movie that stands on the shoulders of giants in a lot of ways or a franchise. I would say that stands on the, and a lot of people who see it, who aren't, uh, lifetime sci-fi nerds like you and myself, uh, See it for you know. Think th- these are all ideas that came from Star Wars, and they're the Star Wars universe ideas. <clears throat> but you and I know that a lot of this stuff is borrowed, and it uh, and our listeners are, I'm sure, many of them already know, uh, and those who don't are learning now that uh, it's these deep cuts in the history of science fiction that make Star Wars even possible to exist. Yeah, and, no, I can appreciate that for sure. No and, question about it. And I don't want to get too hipster and you know say it's only cool if it's not mainstream because I love mainstream <laughs> stuff. When when Leia, even when, like you said, I didn't love the movie, but when Leia uses the Force to f- fly back into the ship after she's in space, like I choked up as a thirty-five or thirty-four-year-old, however old I was at the time, uh, and lots of other great moments throughout the new movies, even in the movies I didn't like, even in uh, the prequels when the the Darth Maul is fighting Qui-Gon Jinn and Obi-Wan Kenobi. I mean, come on, who didn't love that? Yeah. Yeah. That was one of the best lightsaber scenes ever for sure. And you know, there's always going to be those. And, and no, even in the most mainstream of whatever, there's greatness, you know? Yeah. But, I just think it's important for people to uh, realize that there are, is uh, so much gold underneath, uh, like gold in the hills that these things are built on. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I and I think it's it's also important to to understand that that sci-fi has this really rich history that is like heavy metal that is not pg rated you know that sure. is like dune is just all about entheogenic freaking psychedelics you know and so it's it's like no there is way more underneath this you know for me sci the reason i love sci-fi is because sci-fi at its core is a mystery and the mystery of great sci-fi is what does it mean to be human mm. what is this effing reality that we find ourselves in the middle of that no one understands. I don't care what they're telling you. Oh yeah. And, and, and sci-fi is all about delving into that and saying, it's okay to be freaked out, to be human. You know, this is, 
this is one aspect of it. This is that like with ex machina, you know, what does it mean? Are we just algorithms to be, or, or you look at moon to me, the movie moon was a great sci-fi and that was, or could we just be copied or we just the, 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 the biological processes that we are, you know? And so from that, that's what I'm always looking for. I want to understand more about reality. Yeah. I think sci-fi, uh, Star Wars is a uh, revamp of the old uh, space opera, and it's just like a hero saves the day, and there's the good guy defeats the bad guy and learns uh, to, you know, with the help of his friends, and that's great and all, and you know, there's it's a good formula, so I don't I understand why people stick with it, but it doesn't quite unveil the mystery of existence, the one you just described the way deeper science fiction does. And no, like I, Carl Sagan, you know, I knew you're a huge Carl Sagan fan with content. Oh, it's like, no man, there's way more there. And Philip there's, K. Dick. And, uh, yes. there's a uh, Theodore Sturgeon. Um, there, there's a lot of these kind of writers that <clears throat> like take a more cerebral approach. And, uh, again, I, don't want to sound too pretentious here because I don't, I, you can enjoy movies that are just laser blasters and robots and you don't have to feel ashamed of yourself for that because having fun is awesome. And yeah. I, I, I support that wholly, but I think it's also important to let yourself be enriched, uh, by challenging things, ideas, ideas that challenge you. And I think that's why it's important to always try to analyze beneath the surface uh, especially when you when you go see Star Wars and you really enjoy Star Wars, I think half the people will be like, okay, that was fun. I enjoyed Star Wars. And, but there are those other people like us, like the two of us, who say, but why did I like that? What is it about that that I liked? And they just want to go explore that idea and explore yeah. that question. Or, or Winston, when you walk out of a great sci-fi or you finish reading or even in the middle of reading like Philip K. Dick – where you're just pondering not only what you're reading, you're pondering your own life. Oh yeah, just <laughs> right. It, that's what it, we're existence, looking for, ex and that's what I want Infinite Worlds to be about. And I want it to be about, you know, all the different angles that we can approach these questions, all of the different perspectives of people. And that's why I try my best to uh, take art from all around the world. Is because I want everyone's perspective on what these questions mean to them and what their answers to these questions. Not that I feel like there are any convincing answers, <laughs> uh, but you know, um, that's, that's what I'm looking for is like a, a, uh, an open-ended question that as many people can answer as possible. I want all of the different answers. Yeah. I think, I think that that's, again, those questions, illuminate things within ourselves that we we need answers to we feel this need to question these things and to to shine a bit of light there and i think that's what great art does not just great sci-fi but great art i couldn't agree more and science fiction can be art oh and for sure. it, and it you know i guess that's my problem with the new star wars movies is the more safe they are and more comfortable riding in their uh, their groove, the less artistic they are. Yeah. I mean, art has to take risks. Art has to say, great artists say things that no one else is willing to say. You know, and they go places that no one is willing to go. They challenge you. Yes. And, and that's what, you know, that's what some people want. And But I think it's what all people need. Uh, Amen. Uh, <laughs> 
And, Amen. Uh, yeah, I, I totally agree with that. So what's going on? So you, you're working on the new um, episode of, or the new issue of uh, Infinite Worlds. When is When am I getting my issue? Well, if it, What's Infinite going Worlds on, number two got delayed a couple of weeks. Um, okay. It was supposed to be released. Uh, we're recording this right now on the 1st of December here in 2019. Uh, the magazine was supposed to be released yesterday on the 30th of November. But I had a couple of production delays, and I kind of failed to account for the Thanksgiving holiday the last week of November. So we ended up pushing back a couple of weeks. Uh, the magazine is currently at the printer. Right now the file's all sent and paid for. Uh, and we're just waiting for them to process and then deliver. The actual release date is the 14th of December, uh, and we're going to have a little uh, live event with some sci-fi writers uh, reading short stories here in Atlanta, Georgia, which is where I am based. Uh, Nick is out in California. Where, where are you at exactly, Nick? I am in Newport Beach, California, where the waves are good. Oh man! Anywhere that I, I left, the deep, I left the deep south. I'm from New Orleans, but uh, I'm I'm now out in Southern California, so I can surf every day. Well, the waves in Atlanta suck. They're, <laughs> they're terrible. <laughs> um, I know. I've been to Atlanta several times. Um, uh, so the magazine's coming, and I'm could not be more pleased with the way it's come out. Uh, with the the look uh, of it all. Uh, my designer, Sam, uh, he lives in England, and he and I talk just about every day, and uh, we're both so very proud of the look of this magazine. The contents are outstanding. We have an interview with one of my personal heroes, uh, Wayne Barlow. Uh, when I was a little kid, uh, I just I moved to a new town, Brunswick, Georgia. And I didn't know anybody. So I walked down to the public library just to, you know, since I don't know anybody, I'm gonna read books. And uh, one of the books that I saw first was Barlow's Guide to Extraterrestrials, which is this beautiful, like, oversized book, uh, full-color illustrations, where Barlow read all of these sci-fi books and then decided to illustrate different alien species from the books uh, and present them to scale and list all of their physical attributes and, like, societal attributes – and I have never nerded to this day. I don't think I've ever nerded out over anything harder than that book. <laughs> oh, that's so cool, man! Um, and then, so, do you uh, have illustrations from that? Can we see any of that on uh, when you post the podcast? I, I will. I'll, I'll put some up. I'll put some up. But yeah, uh, put a slideshow of like Chewbacca and that. yeah. I want to see all that for just this this post. That'll you'll be have to, you'll have to make make me a note. Uh, but uh, okay, um, Barlow but, Chewbacca. Yeah, uh, but Barlow, uh, I reached out to him as my second interview subject and he was so kind and gracious and just really a delight to interview. I could not, Oh, that's so I, cool. I, I, I was so honored and we, he even went so far as to let us use some of his illustrations in his interview. And it's like a six page spread. It looks beautiful. Oh, I can't wait to read that, man. Um, that's yeah, it's, it's great. a, he is a, he is a wise individual and I'm very happy to have gotten that opportunity. To where, do that. where is he located now? Oh, you know what? That's a great question. Uh, he and I communicated through email, so I actually don't know. But he's he's in America. I know that. But uh, oh, he is. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, he's living in America. So. Oh, that's so cool, man. That's so cool. I can't wait. So when do I get my copy? Uh, you will get your copy. Uh, no later than probably the sixteenth or seventeenth, I would say. Okay. Uh, cool. And all of those people who pre-ordered will get theirs right around the same time. 
which I don't know if which will come out first, this podcast or your magazine making its way to you. But hopefully, I think, I think the podcast will come. Well, I'm going to try and post the podcast this week. Okay. So as soon as we can figure out the opening music, the intro, all that business. This is pretty cool because right now we're speaking of the future uh, <laughs> for us, but for these listeners, it's the present. Right. And no what doubt. A, no what doubt. What a trip that is, you guys. Time uh, machine in action. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We're all the way in the distant past communicating with you now. Yeah. <laughs> um, right. Well, I tell you what, Winston, that brings us to just about an hour. Okay. This has been freaking awesome. Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, I can't wait to do uh, to, to, to record the next one. This has been super fun. Me too. Me too. Yeah, so let's, uh, let's wrap this one up and... Um, and uh, get this out there, man, as quickly as we can, because I know a lot of people have been asking what's going on with the podcast. So, Okay, cool, man. Well, uh, thank you so much. Uh, guys, if you're listening, make sure you follow us on Instagram. That's at uh, Infinite Worlds Magazine. Follow us on Twitter. That's at IW Sci-Fi Mag. Uh, you can find us on Facebook. Uh, you can just go to the plain old website. That's www.infiniteworlds.com. Um, and there's pre-sales of magazines or actually regular sales of magazines available there as well at our online store. That's all limited edition. So get it while you can. Oh, I can't wait. I can't wait. And I am Nick Gullo and you can follow me on Instagram. I am Nick the tooth Gullo. So it is, is just Nick the tooth is my handle. And when you go to my, uh, my Instagram page, you will see why I go by Nick the tooth. So I'll... <laughs> <laughs> all right, Winston, thank you all so right, much. Brother. Live, live long and prosper, brother. All right. That's it. First episode in the can. Hope you enjoyed it. Do us a favor and hit that subscribe button on your podcast app. We are planning to drop an episode every two weeks. So 2020 will be chock full of Infinite World podcast discussions of everything sci-fi. Final note, please hit us with questions or comments on our Instagram accounts, either one, on anything sci-fi, anything related to the podcast, and we will attempt to get to them on uh, future episodes. The theme song for the podcast was composed by Christopher Whitaker. The art by Sam the Man. Until next time, adios.